It's not to say that the customer is always right. That is not what's going on here. They want to be heard. <laughs> Boss Uncaged is a bi-weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners as they become uncaged trailblazers, unconventional thinkers, untethered trendsetters, and unstoppable tycoons. We always hear about overnight success stories, never knowing that it took 20 years to become a reality. Our host, S.A. Grant, conducts narrative accounts through the voices and stories behind Uncaged Bosses. In each episode, guests from a wide range of backgrounds sharing diverse business insights. Learn how to release your primal success through words of wisdom from inspirational entrepreneurs and industry experts as they depict who they are, how they juggle their work life with family life, their successful habits, business expertise, tools, and tips of their trade. Release the uncaged boss beast in you. Welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome to Boss Uncaged Podcast. On today's show, we have none other than Dr. Boots Taylor, better known as Dr. B. Dr. B is the founder of C-Baby, a maternal practice out of Atlanta that specializes in birth options that supports pregnant women in the community by giving them choice, shared decision-making. But more importantly, from a client standpoint, clients don't want to be right. They want to be heard. No more spoilers. Let's jump right into the show. Without further ado, Dr. B. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. B. Now, good morning. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Chanel. Great, great. Uh, first question we have for you today is, who are you? Who am I? Uh, $1 question. I am a maternal fetal medicine specialist, also known as a perinatologist. I'm a believer in autonomy, autonomous thoughts that a mother should be able to make in regards specifically to her pregnancy journey and birth uh, options. And so... That's what I have been about for years, and I think I'm poised to uh, continue to promote that and support it. Uh, define yourself in three to five words. Stepping out on faith in that with shared decision-making and the ability to bring out from the mother or patient her preferences, um, someone who could be a vehicle to help engage that to bring that forward, to bring that from the person, and then to be able to support the journey together. If you don't mind, define shared decision-making. What is that exactly? Uh, Wonderful question. Shared decision-making is a philosophy now that I've adopted over the years and I'm crystallizing it now more than ever. But it's one where the patient and our mother in this situation or scenario can have her understanding of what she is seeking, her understanding of the process through uh, a scientific explanation or references, and uh, to be able to have those conversations with her provider, be it midwife or obstetrician, to where when there are certain decisions to be made about the care and management of the pregnancy, and especially the birth, she's able to share in that discussion in a balanced way to where uh, she can uh, exercise her choice for uh, certain options about how she wants to see the pregnancy go, see the journey. So the ability to have a balanced discussion about the process that she is in the middle of, that's the essence, uh, I believe, of shared decision-making. Now, mind you, having said that, Shared decision-making also comes with uh, another component, which is equally critical, and that's shared responsibility. And with shared responsibility, it puts the provider hopefully at ease because they're not necessarily telling uh, someone to do and taking responsibility for that recommendation, but they're sharing in the decision-making, and thereby everyone is responsible for or let me rephrase that, they are responsible to that decision. Not that the provider needs to be responsible for it, but they are responsible to it. So if, for instance, uh, a mother is choosing to not take antibiotics because of a certain risk for an infection, because she believes and feels and knows that it's good not to take the antibiotic, 
And if it turns out that the antibiotics were needed, she can be responsible to that decision she made. And the provider can be responsible to it in the sense that they were able to explain the risk and benefit of the antibiotics and thereby there's a shared responsibility. There's no finger pointing, I wanna emphasize that, but it's more so being responsible to the choices that were made. And then there's a third critical component to shared decision-making, which I think encapsulates the whole piece, and that's called uh, guided discovery, where you truly may have an expectation, even a preference for certain things, but as events unfold or new information is brought to the, the situation, you discover that you may need to change courses. You may need to, in the instance that I gave about the antibiotics, you may need to backtrack and go and take the antibiotics. But in discovering that, you, you don't necessarily have to feel embarrassed by it or there doesn't need to be a I told you so situation. It can be, wow, I initially had this preference. I discovered that there are certain things going on that I need to now and take on in my decision making. And I've guided myself in another direction and I'm going to choose something else differently. So guided discovery, I think, makes help shared decision-making and shared responsibility a healthy process so that uh, there's no finger-pointing, there's a there's responsibility to it, and you can discover some things about yourself. Just by the way you answered that question, it sounds like you're more of a teacher and a philosopher. Well, what actually is your business? What do you actually do on a day-to-day? Ah, uh, I, I think that uh, <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, I'll get to the nuts and bolts of it, but on a day-to-day basis, I think encourage people to think beyond uh, what's inside their head and having a, a conversation and dialogue about processes and preferences. In my day-to-day, it happens to be attached to pregnancy. And so when I'm speaking with people, the majority of the time, it's them verbalizing uh, questions of ignorance or questions of expectations and allowing that moment or that element to be unmasked and to discover it and to say, okay, yes, this is what I was thinking. And then what's the practicality of that? Does science support that option or preference? So I think as a, as a person who's able to have those conversations, I can elicit from people what their preferences are, what their expectations are, allow them to feel ignorant about something without being embarrassed about the ignorance of it. And there's no judgment, if you will. And so in doing that and believing in that and being an agency to that, I'm able to do what I do regarding the birth and pregnancy. And I happen to be doing that with pregnant mothers. Yeah, we can definitely hear your passion about birth in general and just pregnancy all around. How did you even get into this business? Where did it come from? How did it start, you know? Right. Well, I guess everything is a process of evolution. You begin somewhere and you find yourself somewhere else and you look back and say, wow, how did I get here? For myself, the nuts and bolts of it is that during medical school, I was able to work at a hospital in New York called Jacoby Hospital with a a Dr. J.J. Smith, who was old-time curmudgeon, I think, stoic, silent, pimping you on questions about birth and all that stuff (laughs) and giving you no wiggle room to feign ignorance. So you had a personal expectation about what you needed to be understanding. And then when you had, we call them JJ rounds, when you rounded on patients with JJ Smith, you needed to be on your P's and Q's and he would dive into clinical application of the knowledge, not necessarily book knowledge and taking tests and passing them, But how do you apply this clinically? And it is, I guess, with that platform, I guess you want to talk about a mentor. With that platform, I carried that through my learning and and training with obstetrics to include maternal fetal medicine, which is uh, the field of obstetrics where you specialize in the, the science of what goes on. And so I've always been one where, how do I apply this clinically? And so... Fast forward through many of the things that I've done over the years, it leads to this point where if I can support it scientifically and clinically, and I could have a conversation with a mother about what that looks like and feels like, then shared decision-making becomes a natural evolution of that. And I just happen to have, I guess, enough 
clinical experience and scientific background and uh, temperament to live in that space and not be intimidated by it, not be fearful of it, not be afraid of the patient and all that stuff, but able to apply clinical medicine and science in a shared decision-making model. And all that is based on all the years of training. But it started, you know, as I think about it here today with J.J. Smith as a mentor and as a third-year medical student, actually, when I met uh, Dr. Smith. So... That's definitely an interesting backstory, which leads me to, we always hear about the overnight success stories that take 20 years to become a reality. How long did it take you to get to where you are right now? Great question. It probably started long before college where I I was selected, selected to be on the Special Forces A-Team. And I mention that only because on an A-Team in the Green Berets, the training is, you know, challenging, if you will, physically, but there's a mental component to that. Uh, to where you see attrition rates from class sizes of like, I think in my class it was 150 people and 30 of us graduated, where the, the mental piece was the ability to contextualize fear. Because if you cannot do that, it could be hazardous to your health. And if you can contextualize fear, then you can probably achieve the mission, achieve the goal. The ability to contextualize fear is the ability to process real information and make real decisions. And if you can imagine taking that in the realm of obstetrics, where it's literally all about fear, what's gonna happen? Is this the best for the baby? What do you think? What's the best, should I have a C-section? It is a fear-laden field. (laughs) Should I have a surclage? My doctor's afraid to put a surclage in because it might cause it. Fear, 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 fear everywhere. Science in obstetrics, if you can look at it, actually allows you to contextualize risk. And if you can look at the science and put aside the fear, then you can have a conversation with the mother about the risk and then proceed down that road. And that's how you're able to do vaginal breech birth, support VBACs, do shared decision-making, have moms go over their due date, put surclages in. If you do that because you use science, but you don't introduce fear into the discussion. Now, mind you, the overnight success is the clinical training and experience of going through those scenarios in the real world with patients, mothers, their questions, their ignorance of a process, their expectations, and your ability to support that management. So, so the long ball is taking that template of contextualizing fear in special forces, Green Berets, getting some training in obstetrics. That's what the residency program is about. The Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellowship, which involves publishing scientific papers, thesis defense. I did a lot of uh, animal work with sheep, so I put catheters in sheep and looked at heart rate patterns of the baby and gave medication and all that stuff. I did about 20 sheep. It's hard to do sheep work these days because they're large animals, a lot of money to care for large animals. So I did a lot of sheep uh, physiology and wrote a paper on it, by the way. Uh, giving sheep nitroglycerin to see if it alters their heart rate because we wanted to use nitroglycerin as a medication to stop contractions in preterm labor. It relaxes the muscle quite well, by the way. And nitroglycerin, for, for your audience members, is used for patients who have, uh, who have angina, heart attacks. So you give them nitroglycerin, open up the muscle, they live, they have beautiful outcomes. You can also use nitroglycerin to slow down contractions to prevent preterm birth, which is still the high rate in this country. It's about 10% of births are preterm. And medications have come and gone regarding how to treat preterm birth. So you go through your fellowship, you get your scientific background and training, and then I got a chance to teach residents as an assistant professor of maternal fetal medicine at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York. And I taught residents for two or three years obstetrics. There's a resident here, not a resident, she's an attending. Her name is uh, Shirley Regal Echols. <laughs> who was my intern, I think, back then. And I taught her how to do um, cesarean births. And I bring her name up because when I was teaching her, we were doing an emergency cesarean. I said, never do one. You can do a skin incision either up and down or the bikini cut. And people were teaching her how to do an up and down incision, which is pretty long. It's up to the, almost above the navel and all that stuff. It looks kind of unsightly, to be honest. But I taught her how to do one and the bikini cut so that the incision is more aesthetically pleasing. You can do it in an emergency situation. 
I bring that up because she still brings it up to me to this day, 25 years later, that I taught her how to do a cesarean. And I was able to teach her that based on science and she was being taught differently based on fear. So I taught her how to do bikini cuts. She still does them to this day. She reminds me of it every time I see her. So the long road to give you the shorter answer here is that going through those clinical experiences and applying science in a balanced way allows me to kind of get through uh, my relationship with patients and the work that I do and to be able to support it. So collectively, how long have you been doing it? My first birth was as a medical student. My birth I was able to attend, I stand corrected, was in 1987 as a third year medical student. And as a third year student, uh, you kind of don't know what's going on, to be honest. But the miraculousness of it all was overwhelming. It was really in a, a situation where you went from expectation and waiting and not knowing what was going to come of anything to now seeing a, a baby come onto the planet. And so that was really profound. I can recall the scenario, if you will. And that was during my last rotation as a medical student, it was called obstetrics and gynecology. And I had gone through the various other rotations, general surgery, radiology, psychiatry, uh, things like that, pediatrics. And, you know, was happy to view it, but wasn't necessarily moved by the experience and the ability to take care of uh, a patient in, in those disciplines. So after that first birth, I decided to do what is called a sub-internship. Uh, I mentioned J.J. Smith. He was the director of sub-internship. It actually was an honor to get to be able to do that with him. He only selected like two medical students every two months. And you had to be a fourth-year medical student. And during that sub-internship, which was two months of literally acting as an intern, so as a fourth-year student, I was able to run a labor, uh, labor suite and help manage the patients with the residents and the attendings. So it was a badge of honor, if you will, to be a fourth-year medical student selected for J.J. Smith's uh, sub-internship. And things just compounded from there. So as far as being able to do births, attend to things, take care of patients, learn about uh, empathetic relationships, uh, consolation, and, and, and being a human, in all fairness. Started back then, and I went on to do my obstetrical residency, that's another four years, and then I did another two years uh, as a maternal fetal medicine fellow. And then taught, like I mentioned before, Beth Israel. So, What is one thing you would do differently if you can do it all over again to get you to where you are a lot faster? I guess going back to your second or third question is not an overnight success. I guess there are some things I could do without. I'll say to you that I thought that if I had enough providers in my space, then we could, as a team, promote shared decision-making, if you will, on a wider scale. So instead of it being one-on-one -on -one myself, if I had four or five different mid-level providers working with me, then we can open up the access to many mothers to have options. I thought that if I had uh, many midwives working with me, that we can provide choices and options on a broader scale. What I come to realize with that is that midwives are people too, and they have their fears and their self-editing and uh, maybe, in, to some degree, ignorance of certain processes. And in some of those work relationships, there was a struggle to achieve a common goal. I always thought it was clear what the goal was, which was to open up choices for moms to have birth options. We have something around this office we call Bring Birth Back. It's to bring back those choices to mothers, but I thought I could do it on a broader scale. And what I come to find out that is that not everyone could have that awareness or understanding or that vision. So I went through maybe a few iterations of these midwifery teams to try to bring a shared decision-making model to support birth options to as many mothers as I thought would be feasible. And it just became almost a repetitive challenge to maintain that temperament and discipline across with several team members. And so if, if I had to do something differently this go around <laughs> to get to this point, I probably wouldn't have spent as many years as I did in trying to get that team together. So I kept, re I kept rebuilding that team and rebuilding that team when I should have realized that it's not necessarily 
the goal that's pretty obvious, which is birth options, supporting mothers so they can have shared decision making. But it's hard for some people to bridge that gap, even though they may say they they want to. You mentioned bring birth back. So, I mean, that sounds like a, a tagline. And when it comes to businesses, it's always a hard and difficult thing to come up with taglines. And you've had that tagline for a long period of time. How did you come up with that tagline? Yeah, I'll give you two answers to that story. I was involved with a small group of people trying to open up a birth center here in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the time, there was only one other birth center in Georgia, and it was in Savannah. So you can imagine a state as big as Georgia having just one birth center. Meanwhile, there are some states that have probably tens of birth centers, 60, 70 of them. Here we had in Georgia one. So I was working with a group of individuals when we were trying to do fundraising. We were trying to do something called appeal to the state to get a certificate of need to open a birth center. That's a political process with a lot of red tape. And so we were trying to figure out a way to get people to notice that there was a need for this birth center. I was having uh, dinner one day with the two of the people involved at that time, Anjali uh, Aurora and Kelly Wright. We were bouncing ideas off one another. And I said, you know what? What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring back these options of birth to people that really should not have gone away. And I said, we need to call it Bring Birth Back. That's going to be our campaign. And I even trademarked it and went through that process of getting it uh, trademarked. You'll see it on, on many things now, at least in regards to the birth center, which finally did open, by the way, after four or five years of struggle. But bring birth back is, is a phrase that came to mind to me in that it was something we were trying to do. And it prompts a question of people when they say bring birth back. They always ask, well, where did it go? And then I get a chance to talk about <laughs> my experience, one, but also the birth options that they may not, this person or mother, what have you, may not even be aware of. Like the ability to go over their due date, the ability to have a vaginal birth after a previous cesarean, the ability to opt for an induction. How about that? You can deliver early. So bring birth back just speaks to bringing back birth options. And I can support that uh, relatively easily. Considering that you've been in business for, it seems like decades at this point in time, but your own personal practice has been around for, you know, I think you just had like the, a decade anniversary recently. Right. Did you come from an entrepreneurial background? I mean, how did you even get the, the intuition to even know you could run a business? Did it come from your mom, your dad? I mean, right. where did the hustle come from? Yeah, the hustle and grit. I don't have an entrepreneurial background in my family. Everybody, no one had a business per se. But I will tell you that my Green Beret Special Forces experience taught me that working as a team with a degree of uh, grit, termination, and hustle if you will, um, can allow you to achieve goals that you didn't think possible. Uh, and so it is that background that is kind of in my DNA now. With that said, fast forward a little bit, when I left Beth Israel Medical Center, where I was, where I was uh, on faculty, and I came to Atlanta, I worked for a maternal field medicine uh, specialist, and I spent a year there. And I did not necessarily like the lack of teamwork that was involved in that particular practice uh, setting. And I did not like that there were patients who weren't having their options supported. And as a maternal fetal medicine specialist or perinatologist, you're about discussing options and, you know, getting pros and cons. So I did not like that philosophy or how that was being practiced then. So I left that practice and me and a, and, a, and a good friend of mine at the time decided to start our own practice. And <laughs> we didn't have a dime in our pocket. <laughs> but we knew that what we were doing was not in alignment with how we felt. So the grit and hustle to start my own practice started then. And that was in 1997 or 98, excuse me, because I was here for a year. So in 1998, opened the doors, got some funding from a local bank, begging and pleading essentially, gave us some seed money. And I didn't view it as an anxiety provoking process, but I, <laughs> in reflection, I guess some other people did. And we just got it done. I mean, it was, you know, it was fun for me. It was really like 
hey, we're doing this. And, you know, there were bills to be paid and people joined us on faith. Long story short, we ended up opening uh, seven offices. Opened up two offices in a year. And was happy to do the work, enjoyed it, you know, for fairness. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I was with that practice for about 12 years. And so it was with that I wanted to do something different because it had, it had as most things do, evolved in a certain direction that I was not comfortable with. Um, there was a lot of, I wouldn't say shifts in the goals, but I didn't like how it, it got to be almost, you had to feed the beasts, <laughs> whereas you had to make patients come back for certain things that they may not have had to come back for, but there was a little wiggle room there, so you made them come back. I didn't have that temperament, like make my decisions on facts and those kind of things. So I decided, well, let me do it one more time as an entrepreneur, uh, open up C-Baby. And so C-Baby, the practice name today, is really in line with my philosophy and what I can do to support mothers. This is shared decision-making model that we've been talking about. I do that with ease. I'm happy to do it, love it, grateful for it. And now I guess I'm in a position to where I can take this entrepreneurial journey and now scale it up to others. And I hope to, uh, to be able to do that with this new shared decision-making philosophy that I want to start promoting. You had mentioned that you, know, you had to get some seed money, some capital um, going into banks. Is that one of those situations where you had to come in there with a business plan, a business proposal to kind of sell the idea to them? Yes. You had to do some homework. I do some writing, business plan, which I've learned don't necessarily go the way they are written down. Um, you hear that often enough. But I had to sell the goods. I mean, there was a lot of doors closed, by the way, in meeting with those bankers and lending institutions. With that being said, there was one individual in particular, uh, Cynthia Quarles, her name was Cynthia Williams at the time, who was a banker at one of these local area banks. She was able to push our application through to where we met with her, Cynthia Williams, and her associates and um, me and my colleague at the time, we sat there, had a, this interview and we uh, put our best foot forward. And uh, so Cynthia Williams was able to get us the loan to start the practice. It was a small loan. I thought it was a lot of money then. Uh, it was a small loan. And we were able to, having that loan, which was a line of credit essentially, be able to do a timeshare in an office space with another doctor, OB, who had faith in us. And we timeshared that space for about six months. And from there, we were able to generate some income and go on to sign our own leases and purchase our own equipment and things like that. So, hmm. yeah. That's a definitely interesting backstory. Speaking about interesting backstories, you and your wife are both doctors. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. I better have. <laughs> and I think the first time you, you kind of told me about your, the story of your last name, if you don't mind sharing that, I mean, it was definitely a, a oh, great, sure. great merge. <laughs> yeah, uh, wife's name is Lisa. Lisa Boots was her name, in all fairness. And we met in medical school. She's a year behind me in medical school, by the way. So I was one of those students who always liked to give tours. And so she says when she came to our medical school, which was Albert Einstein in New York, um, I was one of the tour guides, and she saw me as one of the tour guides. She said, I got to come to this medical school because he's so cute. So, <laughs> so she got into medical school, mine, I guess. And I, never, and I didn't know this, of course, till later. And, you know, it's a small group of students in medical school that can really, really bond with each other. So we had actually a small cooking group. It was about 10 of us. We would cook a meal once a week at each other's dorm room or something like that. And so the small cooking group, Everyone would try to outdo one another and learn different tech uh, styles of dishes and certain cuisines. And so we were in a cooking group together, our first year as medical students. I mean, my second year, but her first year. And uh, with that, you know, our relationship grew and um, we became best friends. So Lisa Boots got married to Brad Taylor. With that said, we decided, I decided I wanted to take on her history and her name. And so I did a legal name change to become Boots Taylor. And then when we got married, Lisa just became Lisa Boots Taylor. <laughs> so it's pretty quick when you're a woman. So I changed my name legally to Boots Taylor so that we can uh, share in our histories. And we've been married now going on 33 years. Well, yeah. That's definitely a hell of a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty cool. <laughs> 
But it, it bridges me into that. So how do you guys juggle the, the work life, family life? I mean, both of you guys are doctors. I mean, schedules are crazy. You guys have three kids, so it's yeah. like, how do you how do you yeah. manage all yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess like most things, and the audience could probably relate to this. When you're in the middle of the the moment, you're juggling and dealing with it. You know, I hear about you know we did the whole carpool juggling act, sick kids, ER visits, middle of the night, runny noses, and all that stuff. So you end up you know like most people, you end up pushing through it and you realize, oh, you got through it, but then something else hits you. <laughs> in the moment, you're not necessarily trying to appreciate the difficulty of it. You're you're living it and you're coping with it. Mind you, there's stressful moments and there's lots of joyous moments, if you will. But with that said, being on the same wavelength in the same field, we can understand the commitment to the field of medicine. It's not one where if we were, I think if we were in different different arenas, it would be hard to, for Lisa to understand why am I going to do a birth at two o'clock in the morning, eight days in a row, when everyone else is off at five o'clock, having beautiful dinners and all that stuff. So she can understand that. And I can also understand where she, what she's doing when she has to be one of the, the few women in her specialty, which is plastic surgery, especially when she started, it was a male-dominated field where she had to, on the daily, prove herself, uh, even to newcomers. We could relate to each other's background and our professions more so as support as opposed to anything else. And then with that, like you mentioned, we had three children. Um, people always ask me, let me answer this now, I did not deliver any of the three kids. <laughs> the hardest part actually is being a coach and a support person in a birth as opposed to delivering it. Because I, as I tell a lot of people, a taxi driver can do, can do a delivery. It's the support piece that's hard. <laughs> so uh, we have three kids. You know, they're wonderful people. And none of them are going into medicine, <laughs> having seen our work-life balance, um, which is cool. I'm glad they can have choices, if you will. So um, it's great, yeah. Our three kids, Chloe, uh, Chase, and Chance. So, And Chance is named Chance. He's number three because it was our last chance to get it right. So we call him Chance. <laughs> interesting thing that you just said is that you were in a birth support group so it kind of makes me think of like the undercover boss situation like you're in the room you do this for a living mm-hmm. and in one side of the house somebody probably could have recognized you and the other side of the house you know exactly the way it should have been done was that a conflict of interest during your birth um you mean when i was in the group that was we had grown to yeah. practices uh short answer is yes because um the group that we had evolved into from two people to about five maternal fetal medicine specialists. Well, not the group. I'm talking about your wife's birth. Oh, those are interesting births, is what I will say. I'll take some time to kind of go over a little bit of that without <laughs> boring your audience or grossing them out. But with our daughter, uh, Chloe, we were both residents. She was in general surgery, by the way, which is a pretty tough residency to go through. And uh, I was at the end of my OB-GYN residency. And we didn't think of birth as a challenging dynamic. It was We thought it was going to have a vaginal delivery. We didn't really get into options and all the things you had to fight for today. It was more so, okay, let's work until we went into labor. <laughs> I missed the majority of the prenatal visits. She went by herself. <laughs> we were birthing at the place where she did her residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. When her water bag broke, we went out to dinner. When I talked to patients today, somebody just last week told me, when I water break, break, they got to come to the hospital right away, don't I? So back then, <laughs> we just kind of looked at it like a natural process. And yes, I was an, an OB resident, but I didn't view it as a potential time bomb. Something's going to happen. Oh my God, monitor. Water back broke. We went to dinner and went to sleep. Got up, I think, at 2 o'clock in the morning, had a few contractions, called the OB. She'll be coming now, coming in the morning. She said, come come tomorrow morning. We'll see. Got there and did our thing. And we, you know, she had a, we had a beautiful vaginal birth, to be honest. It was wonderful to see our daughter and all that stuff. Didn't think anything of it. And I keep saying it like that because when I talk to patients who say, did you do the delivery? And I keep saying, no, the hard part is coaching. I can see now how... For the patient, the hard part is just sitting by and watching it all unfold because there's so much information coming at you, preferences of the nurses, 
the B.D.O.B. who may have wanted you to the words that are said. They're kind of heavy. You hear the word death mentioned all the time. Or you want what's best for your baby, don't you? Almost accusatory condescension. When we had our children, we, we didn't think, say, I'm almost embarrassed. We didn't think much of it. It was like, and I was a perinatologist with our second two kids. So didn't think of all the potential um, things that could go wrong at all, but was in supportive environments with our with our obstetricians. Our first, um, and then our, with our second baby, we were out in San Francisco. I was doing my fellowship. Lisa was doing research, looking at fetal wound healing. And I remember that fondly because I had to collect a lot of blood from many placentas for her because she was learning how babies scar in utero and was doing fetal wound healing work out of University of California, San Francisco. And so during that birth, get this, we're at the home where OB anesthesia was developed, UCSF. Uh, they write the textbooks out there. She decided she wanted to get an epidural. I believe it wasn't that. No, it was just some pain relief medication, fentanyl. No epidural. And she got an allergic reaction. And her allergic reaction was to be itching. She was itching through the whole labor. So as a support person and a perinatologist, I could do nothing about the itching. But I could offer the support. <laughs> and the OB anesthesia team out there could do nothing about it. It's one of the 1% of people get a side effect. So that was literally a miserable labor experience. And I was like, whoa. And we had our beautiful second child, our son, Chase. <laughs> and then with our third baby, um, we were here in Atlanta, in this building, in fact. And we went, quote unquote, natural. <laughs> Nothing for pain medication to avoid the itching. Went into labor and had our biggest babies, like nine pounds, something like that, nine fifteen, and just didn't think much of it. Really, was still. Mind you, I understand as a perinatologist, I can contextualize all the potential risk, but really didn't look at it like, oh my god, what could potentially happen? So, as far as being in the room to answer your question, there was no pushback. For me to the staff and all that, I just kind of went with it, went with the flow. People knew I was an MFM specialist. No one was trying to challenge me. Maybe they were giving deference to that. But there was no imbalance or the confrontations I hear patients share with me with their team and their providers and midwives. There was, I didn't sense or, or see any of that. So, um, you know, no drama in all fairness. Definitely pretty interesting. Next up is, um, what are your morning habits? I mean, what did you, I mean, consider you're always on call. Like, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how do you even get like eight hours of sleep. So. Right, right, right. Well, me and my wife say we should bank sleep. So uh, meaning that you try to get a nap here or there. We don't do that anymore. What I'm able to do is get nice little solid blocks of sleep, which may total eight hours in pieces. But my morning ritual is one where... I really move kind of slow in the morning because there's a lot of, you wake up to new thoughts. I kind of like absorb all the, the ideas that are coming in. I kind of project out what the day is going to look like. I don't eat breakfast. I just have a nice cup of uh, coffee, gourmet. You know, I grind some beans and that kind of thing. And I have a nice cup of coffee that has probably about eight packs of raw sugar in it. <laughs> And that's my one cup a day, to be honest. So I just use that as a fuel, but I don't eat breakfast intentionally because I want to have a sense of you know hunger by midday. But the coffee carries me, and I, maybe it's the sugar in it that helps. I, I move slowly in the morning, for sure, just to let to let thoughts process and to think about things and to think about what the day is going to look like, to reflect on what the last day was, because I know once I get into the work environment, I got to kind of kind of hit it. And I'm used to hitting it all the time. So ironically, for me, I just move slower in the morning. And then when I'm dropped into the zone, it's on big time. And I'm good with that because I'm used to stuff coming at me. So that's an interesting philosophy. So you say you don't eat breakfast, you get a cup of coffee. Right. And then what you just said was that you want to build up to the hunger. Is that more of a entrepreneurial hunger? Is that more of a hunger of executing the day? I mean, it's not like you're in the belly of the beast, right? So what kind of hunger are you defining? 
Yeah, that, that's that may be difficult to answer. I, I think some of the words you've used to pose the question encapsulate that where you're, I guess the analogy I can use is that you're kind of walking through the plains or the jungle or onto a beach and things are slow and you know something is unfolding, something is out there and you know that let me enjoy this moment of introspection and quiet. When, when I drive to work, I'm always listening to this kind of spa music that plays here all day. But it's kind of like you're coming into the fold because, you know, once you're in it, it's like the Super Bowl. It's like fourth and inches. It's the final 10 seconds on the clock at the three point line. It's the Olympics going for the gold. So I like that moment leading up to that. That's when I think my eyes see more, that my ears hear better, the brain uh, the neurons are firing at, at, at all cylinders, but it's in that slow motion uh, runway up to the event. So is that the entrepreneurial thing? Is that the Hunger Games going on internally? I guess it's, I guess it's all that. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I see it as helpful for my balance. Yeah, it's not like you're in the zone, yeah. right? Like, yeah. It's like you're building up into the zone. It's kind of like a keto diet. You know, you're just kind of like starving just enough yeah. to then you're at the highest peak. So. Definitely interesting philosophy. So, I mean, you definitely touched on how, how do you start your day? Well, how do you end your day? And when does your day end? <laughs> well, because I do births, they can be um, interesting evenings. Like I was up New Year's Eve uh, with, with the mom and didn't mind it. You know, hey, the day is just more of, and then oftentimes I'm doing some administrative paperwork. So I'm here in the office uh, a few hours, an uh, hour or two after work, if you will. But it's kind of uneventful. I may grab something to eat, that kind of thing. But there's no ritual like the morning that I can pinpoint. The day just kind of ends. So, nothing in particular. Yeah, it doesn't take you like five minutes to go to sleep or you just automatically crash when the opportunity kicks in. Well, I, I, I'm laughing because sometimes I have a cup of coffee and I go right to sleep. <laughs> so, like, I'll be at home and I'll say, hey, Lisa, you want me to make you a cup of coffee? She said, I thought you drink coffee. It's 10 o'clock at night. Are you crazy? And I drink it sometimes at night. Because I know I might go in at 4 a.m. if I know someone's out there kind of brewing in birth world, I call it. So I know I'm going to need to be up for that. So I'll make a cup of coffee maybe at 10 o'clock at night, and I can go to sleep in five minutes. <laughs> Having just made it and consumed it. So I don't have a problem with uh, trying to fall asleep. but and I can Because I also can get up and be running to go do a birth, driving to the hospital, jumping on an elevator, and run and do a surgical birth, a cesarean, and be alert and oriented and all game in. So I know I can be on when it's time to be on. That I know. So. Hey guys, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Support for Boss Uncaged and the following message comes from Boutiki. Boutiki inspirational apparel and more. Break through and conquer your next meeting. Walk in and spotlight your success with inspirational business apparel, accessories, and more. Visit B-U-T-E-K-E.com today and order products that represent your success. Back to the show. And just to add to that, and I was reading some, some quotes from a review recently. Someone had an anniversary Facebook quote, and they keep saying that when I was in the room, this is this morning, matter of fact, when I was in the room with them when they were laboring, I brought a calm presence to that room. And that's repeated a lot when, when people talk about their engagement with what I do. And that calm presence comes from understanding that I'm in this zone, in this scene where things could fly off, but I'm taking all the information in and I'm processing that. So it's the ability to be in that space and not project anxiety and fear but to bring a sense of this calmness it's almost like before going to the work i mentioned this morning just being in that space prepared for stuff to occur and if it does or does not i can know i can kind of handle it so i bring that when i'm doing the 3 a.m birth or the 3 p.m birth to bring that calmness into it because I, I can appreciate the information, I can take in the, the information that's given to me and not wear it on my sleeve. And I think that's what you know patients get out of 
I'm going to say the sheer decision-making philosophy. Well, yeah, I definitely agree with that across the board, both from the business standpoint, I think your personal point of views, you're definitely like a, a Jedi. You pull the Jedi mind trick when you walk into the room. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> right. like this guy was in the military. Right, right. Okay? He's seen action. Right. And, and now he's like, he walks in the room and everything becomes completely serene when he walks in. It's like, you know, you walk in as Yoda. So it's definitely... Um, right, right. It's, the fact that you could walk in a room and your patients could actually not even knowing who you are in your history, they can kind of feel that and they get that sense from you. It's, it's definitely um, a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it reminds me of a, of a patient who wrote a review. Um, first time mom was doing a breech birth and came into the hospital laboring. You know, breech, has, breech is a loaded word in, in maternity care. And she describes in her post, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, she's like, well, he walked in like a badass and everybody just calmed down. And it had a beautiful vaginal breach, something like that. But it was just coming into that space, and everybody's like, breach, breach, breach. No, bring it down, everybody. And she just described it. He came in like a badass and just <laughs> set this tone. Sound like a t shirt design. Yeah. <laughs> Walking like a badass. Yeah. So, I remember her. Anyway. So, I've had the pleasure of working with you, I guess it's been like, what, maybe 10 years? Yeah, it's getting up there, friend. Yeah. Getting up there to that yeah. point. Yeah. I know what my vision to this answer to this question is, but I'll ask it to you directly and kind of see if we have similar philosophies. Where do you see yourself in 20 years? Ah. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I mean, we got a covert here uh, podcast. This is called Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, Chanel, to answer your question, I mean, we've done a few things together, which have all been, you know, wonderful experiences and lightning and great stuff. And it's been geared towards the goal of expanding the brand, I guess. And I think now with this recent iteration of, of what I'm trying to do is really expanding this brand to where it's not just a philosophy and a, and a, and a mindset within my head about how I can provide care for mothers, but the long-term plan or goal is to make sure that mothers have this philosophy and awareness within their hands thereby they can take control of their circumstances without having things taken from them. And so this rebranding, if you will, this re-infusion of the idea using contemporary platforms, be it you know social media, uh, podcasting even, this ability to get this shared decision-making into the hands of the consumer, mother, patient, who can make the providers better. And I'm talking about obstetricians and midwives. And their hospitals, if they're having a baby at a hospital, a better place. So my 20-year goal is to see mothers have a voice in their birth, their birth processes, their maternity care, and to be able to uh, practice shared decision-making. And I know it's going to be a task because fear is in there. It's in the mother's head. Uh, and I can understand why it's there. It's, it's put upon her. Uh, you got to do what's best for your baby, right? I hope that within the next 10, 20 years that it becomes a, a phrase, oh, that's how we do it, shared decision-making versus, you know, I need to listen to you provider to tell me to do everything. So, so and, and everything that, that you said, um, I think you touched on a, a good segue to let the cat out of the bag. Um, recently, we've been working on developing a book series. Okay. Right, right. So why don't you kind of just tell us a little bit about that, the title of the book, um, what right. to expect from that book, right. what to expect from the series. Right. Yeah. So how do you how do you give some substance to this philosophy? The title of the book is called Shared Decision Making, subtitle Bring Birth Back. And the platform that I'm trying to promote is what... I experienced daily uh, within the office and uh, and at births. And so the ability to structure either a series of seminars, uh, information-based materials, uh, the book itself, which may be a series of books, is to try to solidify that, to make it more tangible so people can touch it and learn it and grow with it and bring it into part of their lives as part of a lifestyle, if you will, especially with maternity care or while they're pregnant. And so shared decision-making being the title is to really give the mother or customer the tools to live in that space. And if they can live in that space and breathe it, then they won't be afraid 
to verbalize their desires or their preferences. They'll be more empowered to encourage their providers to be better by them in a more respectful uh, dynamic, a more respectful relationship. It won't be an unbalanced relationship where the provider has all the information and the consumer or mother is afraid to ask a question of the provider. So to bring better balance to that relationship and ultimately making for a healthier process because they will have shared responsibility. Like I mentioned before, that's one of the three legs on the stool. And so the key is using my experience all these years, uh, my ability to process the information uh, regarding pregnancy, the ability to engage people and show them the tools that they can use to engage their providers is what this is all about. So the book will highlight that, will give you the resources to begin to inculcate that into your personality and into your lifestyle, especially with pregnancy care and birth. So I think if moms have the tools in their toolkit, they can use them and they don't have to look back with a regretful, I should have asked a question, I should have done this differently. They can feel empowered by their journey. And that's what shared decision-making is. And that's what the book, I, that's what I hope to achieve in, uh, in getting that book launched. Great. So in partnership with the book, I mean, where do you see the company? You kind of outline where do you see yourself, but where do you see the company in 20 years? You know, you're talking about stepping from not just delivering births, but more so social education to both patients and to right. additional medical right individuals as well. Right. I, well, the vision, I think, is to scale up the philosophy and to scale up the tools so that it becomes common knowledge. It, it's not a one-off. And let me, you know, I have a mom who joined our practice from Florida two days ago or three days ago. She's driving 12 hours to have a birth with me, in all fairness, and she shouldn't have to do that. And it's been happening for years. People come from several states away so they can have conversations shared decision-making, shared philosophy. If the company could scale that up and create uh, conferences and, and workshops to where the mother, the customer, feels that they can take those tools into their environment, then you don't have to drive from Florida to have a birth with C-Baby or myself. You can actually use those tools in your environment and make the people around you, the providers in particular, uh, better people, better listeners, better clinicians, because they're tuning into this shared decision-making uh, philosophy. And the philosophy is not meant that this is important. The philosophy is not meant to be antagonistic and confrontational. It's more so meant to make it a shared responsibility, more alignment. There's something I described recently. It's called a B-score. How does your provider get better in alignment with you and you in alignment with your provider? So... The company, I hope, can promote that on a, on a larger scale, conferences, seminars, workshops, uh, and things like that. And so this moment, this kind of style of what we do is accessible to many and not just a few who come across a, a C-Baby. So it's definitely just you say you have people that come from on a national level, but you know, you've also touched on a global level as well, too. Yeah, there are people who've come from Europe. <laughs> I've got a patient now from France. Uh, who sought me out, actually. So it's not like, okay, let me pick an OB out of a telephone book or out of a Rolodex and go to them. They were told to come here based on the, either their personalities or what they expected. I had a twin birth about, I mentioned about last week. She was told by people in Oregon that she needs to come to see baby to have a certain style of practice. And that was one where the one, hate to say it, like a broken record, shared decision-making, listening to the patient, encouraging their ability to ask questions, guided discovery. She was told by somebody in Oregon, she needs to have her twin birth with me. And that was more so, so not so she could have a twin vaginal delivery, which she did have, but she was happy to have a cesarean if it was necessary, but to have a respectful, balanced pregnancy process. Because oftentimes there's a lot of fear attached to twin pregnancy. And there are some cautionary elements that should be there. But how you have that conversation is the problem, I think, these days. To answer a thought, the idea is to broaden it up, scale it up, make it accessible. 
I want people to be able to say 20 years from now, oh, that's how we do it. Shared decision making. Not for it to be a one-off, got to go find it on top of the mountain, <laughs> look for it through some kind of matrix. No, this is how we do it. So how does that work on like the customer service side? I mean, if you're having people coming from different time codes, different regions of the world, like, I mean, how are you guys managing that? I'm not sure how to answer that beyond if I was going to Thailand to try to figure out how to do some kind of stupid Middle Eastern meditation process, I guess I would go and adapt to being in Thailand a 12-hour time difference. It's not so much the logistics of that. I mean, people call the office, schedule appointments, those kind of things. But I think when you're craving something or seeking something of value to you, you're going to, as a customer, make that adaptation. So, Secondary to that is, so you're talking about different cultures as well, too. So the viewpoints on birth is completely different on a global scale. I mean, the process of birth is generally the same, but, you know, different views, different nationalities, different personalities. How do you deal with that? You know, Great question. The singular answer is a respectful encounter. That transfers across all cultures and languages. And I see people with different languages and cultures. They can tell when they're being disrespected, condescended to, marginalized, being coerced, threatened, bullied even. It, that crosses cultures. When is that? Respect is universal. Whether we speak the language or got assigned to each other, it is as clear as day. And so I think the common thread is, is that. How do you get respect? Share in the decision making about the pregnancy, about the birth options and choices. And I want to emphasize, it's not like someone comes from West Africa or uh, Tibet or France and says, this is how they do it in Tibet, France, and West Africa, and I need to have a cesarean birth, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. They actually come and say, how do we get an understanding of this process, and therefore we can make the right choices for us based on the science and my preferences? And that is a common sentiment that I get across all cultures. I had an uh, integrative medicine physician who was Korean, and her husband seek me out. They were twins. She was a little elderly. I, excuse me, I apologize. She was over 35 years of age. She's actually young in spirit, my apologies. But she was being told that she was a high-risk pregnancy. This was gonna happen. They're gonna induce, gonna do them by C-section. She was being told all of this versus having a conversation about it based on what are the risks for certain things. And then they came to me late in their pregnancy because they wanted to at least have conversations. So it wasn't about me doing something magical on this end. I was adhering to the science and having a respectful dialogue with them and conversation about the management. So people come for that, you know, across all cultures and languages and sexual orientations. And so we have surrogates coming here, all, you know, different types of people who want, who want to be respected. So simple for us. Yeah, that's a simple point that, you know, could translate into any business unit, really. Right. And it just really comes out to treat people the way you want to be treated. Correct. Right. With that said, Chanel, it's not to say that the customer is always right. That is not what's going on here. They want to be heard. <laughs> and if the customer is wrong, the customer is wrong. They respect that. I don't want people to think that, oh, we're going to give everybody what they want and need, and it's Pollyanna, a pie in the sky, rainbows and waterfalls and all that stuff. No. They want to be able to hear the information, process it, make choices and decisions based on real stuff, and to be able to explore that. What's one tool that you couldn't run your business without? Easy. The people. <laughs> the people, the people uh, who, have, who believe in, in the division, who believe in what we do. Make extra efforts to make sure that it happens. Yourself is one of them, if I can speak freely. Uh, behind the scenes for, for years now, going on a decade in various avenues of the practice and media support, marketing, et cetera, uh, developing our current platform even. So I, I definitely acknowledge that. Uh, Julia Modestis, who was in the room a minute ago, the office manager who worked with the while, very astute, uh, on point, thoughtful, uh, forward thinking, diligent. Can't say enough about, it, about her, her contributions to that. And various staff over the years as well. So the people make the process they give life to it, vitality, 
uh, we just got to be able to use the tools of our current technologies to, to, to take advantage of that. So, hands down. What is your final words of wisdom you would like to leave behind for the up and coming entrepreneurs that are following in your footsteps? I got to read your book <laughs> to give me some real, some real uh, ironclad things to hold on to. But um, I'm going to say that it, this may sound trite and bromidic, if you will, but you got to find your passion. You got to uh, do less self editing and more belief into what you are trying to achieve. If you're thinking about something differently, others don't see it that way. And you're going to get many people trying to offer words of caution, if you will, which could be a downer. Uh, there are certain realities to that, of course. But I think you've got to uh, find your passion and go after it. It helps to have some intestinal fortitude or some grit because <laughs> the mountain gets high and the doubts kind of flood on in. There's a quote that I'm using these days called raise your level, raise your devil, meaning that the more you become, uh, I guess, viewed or seen, the more uh, enemies you have. <laughs> so as, as an entrepreneur, you got to have that intestinal fortitude, grit, passion, and a vision. So how can people find you online? I mean, Facebook, Instagram, your email address, DNA samples, phone numbers. <laughs> gotcha. And probably face recognition software yeah, these, these days. Fingerprint scanners. Yeah, sure. You go to cbaby.org. And then the Dr. B's website's going to be coming out pretty soon. Oh. I got to get the right name for that. And then, of course, call in the office at 404-223-9306. That'll get you to talk to, to, talk to the person and get more information. But our website for now is um, www.cbaby.org. And I'll list the other variables okay. on there as well to the Instagram accounts <laughs> and all the other right. social media right. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it all at the end of, end of the podcast. I got to get a list myself, I guess. And put it in my phone. <laughs> uh, the bonus question is, uh, do you remember when we first met? I do, but I have like mixed memories. <laughs> I mean, different scenes. Like, did I meet him here? Did I meet him there? I'm going to say we met here in the office. I think it was more so of a project that we were working on. <laughs> and I don't remember the exact nature of the project. But there was a grand opening we were going to do. And you were part of you know, getting that grand opening together. So the grand opening involved finding places and venues. And then we, we couldn't do it at an auditorium and had to have a theater. And so working through that process was good. There were some other things going on with that simultaneously, which is why I have this mixed vision. We were selling, um, trying to promote stuffed animals that had like heartbeats in them. And there were some other things going on. We got poster boards and displays. We had so, dancers too, right? <laughs> yeah, that too. So as you can tell from my answer, with Chanel, you got to be kind of like, have this kind of broad acceptance of multiple things happening at once. And so, I mean, he's definitely good for layering things in a great way, in all fairness, layering things so that things touch each other. There's these touch points versus one thing at a time. So our first meeting involves my vision of all these things kind of happening. We even had a whiteboard. We drew up some things. And now we're back in that relationship, I'm happy yeah. to say. But yeah, so, um, so that was it. So. Gotcha. I mean, for me, it was always... You've always been like the Jedi. <laughs> You've always been like, okay. Once Dr. B starts talking, like everybody stops moving and they go completely silent and they're all just like listening. You, you, <laughs> you become this um, like voice of reasoning for any topic. I mean, it could, birth is obviously your passion, right. but when you go from birth to just life in general and you talk about business, I mean, all three of those things are kind of under your umbrella of your vision. And when you start you. speaking, it becomes this Everybody gets silent in okay. that moment. So I gotta take advantage of that then. <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean I think you do it without even knowing that you do it. I mean once you start talking and then everybody's yeah. kinda like even patients, they're all like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you yeah? Yeah, and you saw people start writing notes. It may be a five minute thing that turns to fifteen minutes, but yeah. it's, it's yeah. noteworthy literally nine out of ten times. Yeah. So. Yeah. I got you. I got you. And that's why maybe when I talk to people I say we're going to have, and I see people all the time having consultations, quote unquote. But when I come into the office or I meet with them, I say, we're going to have a conversation. And that changes everything hmm. versus I'm going to be the sage on the stage talking to you. So I guess you're right. I try to make it, uh, make it conversational. Hmm. So.
Well, I definitely appreciate you taking the time out to answer these questions and hop on the podcast. And I mean, I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast as well, too, <laughs> coming up in, in 2020 and a lot of other items lined up for this year. So, got you. Wonderful. Well, it's been great. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, allow me to crystallize some of my thoughts uh, coming up to this, this new year. 2020 is the metaphors for seeing clearly. I think I want to have a clear vision of what we're going to do. Yeah, well, 2020, the year of perfect vision. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, sir. All right, <laughs> sir. Have a good one. Sir? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncage. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to become an uncaged trailblazer. If this podcast helped you, please email me about it. Submit additional questions you would love to hear me ask our guests and or drop me your thoughts at asksagrant.com. Post comments, share, hit subscribe, and remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful book, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.sagrant.com slash boss uncaged.